Well, I'm so enthusiastic. I'm so glad for what is before us, this camp. I understand it's Friday night. We've been driving, you know, when we hit gridlock, all of us did in traffic. And I'll try to be sensitive and key off you guys. If we get tired and weary, I'll just kind of clip it off and we'll continue tomorrow, okay? I understand and we're fine with that. But the subject before us is massive. It is as big as God is. Because we're going to talk about this evening and these coming days, worshiping God, the worship of God. And this is, a, this is a subject, this is a topic that is so huge that when we understand and grow in it, God will cause us to see him as he really is. And we will respond with a, a sense of being humbled before him and walking before him like we've never walked before in worshiping him. Get some water, excuse me. In the fourth chapter of John, there's a story that we know very well. It's a story where Christ comes to the well in Samaria. And he meets that lady there who had come for the purpose of getting physical water. And we know then she comes to understand that Christ who she meets offers her living water. Living water. And it was a jaw dropper for her. She was blown away. And remember the story unfolds. She, she processes it all. And it, it, it hits home in her heart. She takes off running, leaves her water container behind, and tells those in her town who Christ is, who she has met. And so we know that story, we marvel the story, but let me tell you this. That story is far bigger, far more amazing than just that water. It's far more amazing than evangelism. It's far more amazing than even salvation. What could be bigger than all those? Our Lord says, it is worship. It is worship. He had just told the lady in John 4, verse 23, but an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Now this is fantastic. Because what our Lord Jesus Christ says right there is this. God is actively seeking certain people. He is seeking, he is looking for, he is after those that will be his worshipers. Now we understand, we know that the angelic realms worship God. But what Christ our Lord says to us in this text is this, God is seeking those who will worship him. Those who have a fiery heart of passion to worship him. And this is my prayer. My prayer is that we will understand in our time together what God means in his saying that he wants us to be those that worship him in spirit and in truth and know how to go about doing that. And that on Sunday afternoon when we leave this place, we leave as those who have been catapulted forward as those that worship God more as he has designed us and made us to worship him. That we be those that worship him in our church in our marriages, in our friendships, and on the, in the workplace, at school, wherever we are, that we will be those, first and foremost, who will be characterized by worship, that we will worship God. Now, I'll, I'll just level with you. God has impressed upon my heart, even reviewing for this time this week, how far I have to go in worshiping Him, how little I truly worship Him in spirit and in truth. This last week, I'm at the computer, got my Bible open, working through these texts. In fact, this very text of Scripture, it was a hot, of course, day. And I have this, this frozen strawberry bar. I'm eating this thing, and I'm into the text of, of the Scriptures that we're going to look at in a moment. And then it, it, it hits me, it blazes through my mind. I thought, wow. God has given me his word. God has given me himself. And God, yes, he's even given me this little frozen strawberry bar. So I can worship him. And I said, God, I said, God, thank you. Thank you that you give me the greatness of your word and you've given me this little strawberry bar and everything in between so I can worship you. Beloved, God wants us to grow as those who worship him and worship him rightly as he shows us how we ought to worship him. God gives us the golden standard of worship. You have that on your lap or in your hand this evening. The word of God. And I bless God that from beginning to end and everything in between, you as a church have as your ambition to have a God-centered ministry 
that is defined by God's word. In fact, your mission statement, I read it yesterday. It speaks of the centrality of God's word in worship. The centrality of God's word in worship. In other words, everything God says in this book defines how we go about worshiping him. Nothing less, nothing more. So we're committed to that. We want to follow the truth that God has revealed about who he is and how he has called us to be those that worship him. I believe, as I look back in my own life, I understand that and want to continue to grow in that. The truth of the word driving my worship. But there is something else that defines in John 4, I just read you, how we ought to worship God. We're to worship him in spirit and in truth. In spirit. Christian, that term there, in spirit, is not the Holy Spirit. It is the spirit that God has placed in you. It is your human spirit. It is your emotions. It is your affections. And God says, that is what I want to be engaged as well when you worship me in truth. That you worship me in spirit and in truth. Now imagine a young man, okay? He meets this girl and he realizes, wow, she is Miss Perfect. The personality, the way she looks, the way she acts, the way she talks, she's everything. And so finally he gets up enough courage, he gets to the ring, he goes to her and he says this to her. I've come to understand and realize and conclude that you're the one for me. You're attractive, you're wise, you're sensitive, and you're patient. Based upon all the facts that I know to be true of you, I want to ask you this question. Will you marry me? Will you marry me? Now, this gentleman may be sincere, but there's something drastically missing in what's going on in his thinking. What is that? He knows all the right information about her, but he has expressed no emotions for her. No emotions for her. He's got the facts, but not the fire. There's no intensity in his love for her that's communicated. There's no passionate spirit that he has for her. Christian, when it comes to worshiping God, we must have both. We must worship him in truth, but we also must worship him as he's called us to in spirit, with zeal, with affection, with passion. Christian, have you ever caught yourself mouthing lyrics of some great praise song and then realize that your heart is so, so far away? Have you ever gone through the emotions of worship while not, no longer being overwhelmed with the person of whom you sing, of God? And when was it the last time you found yourself boasting to someone over how great God is and how you walk with him and know him and love him and worship him, that you couldn't stop talking about all that he is to you? Friends in Christ, the purpose of your life is worship, to worship God. The goal of salvation, the goal of sanctification, and the goal of our future glorification, all of that is worship. Worshiping God His way in spirit and in truth. And we can even say that the goal of missions also is worship. For missions only exists where worship does not. So we see our God calls us to lives that experience the wonder of worship and spill over on everyone around us. That is the calling before us as believers to know and embrace constantly in a fuller and more deeper way. So here we go. Grab the text of Scripture. Look at Psalm 34. And I love this psalm, and I know you do too, if you've known Christ for any length of time. Psalm 34. Here we meet a man who is overwhelmed with the wonder of worshiping God. And he invites, invites us to the very same. Psalm chapter 34. We read, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant. And their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for to those who fear him there is no want. 
The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Praise God, this is his living word to us this evening. Here David shows us what it is like to worship God with a heart that pulsates for him. Now, first glance, when we read David's words, we might think, we might conclude, oh, things are going well for him. Therefore, he's praising God. He's got things going just like you'd like them to go. Yet if you have a study Bible or any kind of a more complete Bible with the notes in it, notice beforehand, before verse 1, what's written there, I believe we're going to see these a couple times this weekend. I believe these inscriptions before the first verse are actually part of the original text, and therefore we need to understand them. Look what it says there. It's about the life situation from the one who writes this. A psalm of David when he feigned madness before Abimelech, who drove him away and he departed. That's the backdrop to the psalm. That's what happened before David writes these words. Now let me clarify. Abimelech was a dynastic title for one of the kings of Gath. That is Abimelech. Ahimelech is the name of the priest. We'll see both of them, so hang with me, okay? Now look with me in 1 Samuel 21. I want you to see what happened before David was motivated to write this psalm. It was one of the worst times in his life as a believer. 1 Samuel 21, we're going to be there for a few minutes, and then come back to Psalm 34. Look there with me and see the fascinating account detailing what took place before David penned these words. 1 Samuel 21, it's about Samuel, excuse me, David fleeing from Saul, and, and, and we see what happens after that. He becomes tired, he's hungry, and now he comes to the priest whose name is Ahimelech, Ahimelech the priest. Look at verse 2 of 1 Samuel 21. David deceives the priest, and then in verse 2, we read this. He tells him, the king, that's Saul, has commissioned me with a matter. He is deceiving the priest. His deception works, and the priest then gives David the consecrated bread from the altar which David eats. There's deception going on now in David. And move forward in chapter 21 to verse 8. Look what happens. And David said to Ahimelech, that's the priest, Now, is there not a spear or a sword on hand? For I brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's matter was urgent. Then the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, behold, it is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you take it for yourself, take it. For there is no other except it here. And David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. So off David goes with the sword that he used to kill Goliath, to remove his head. Now everything so far sounds like, all right, you know, he's trying to, trying to take care of himself, defend himself. But look down now to verse 10. It continues, Then David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of this one as they danced, saying, Saul has slain his thousands? And David is ten thousands? David took these words to heart and watched what the text says, and greatly feared Achish, king of Gath. Again, a low point in David's life. He's not trusting God. He's fearing this king. He's fearing for his life. David must have been, a, must have been afraid that Achish would have thought he was a spy. Now look at the situation, how it develops in verse 13. 
So he, this is David, distinguished his sanity before them and acted insanely in their hands and scribbled on the door of the gate and let his saliva run down into his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, do you see the man behaving as a madman? Why do you bring him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this one to act the madman in my presence? Shall this one come into my house? There it is. David deceives them, acting as if he's out of his mind, and they fall for it. Therefore, he's able to escape from them. By the way, very interesting historical footnote here. In the Eastern culture at the time, there was a superstition that you don't kill insane people. You just put them away to deal with, let them deal with the problem on their own. You ostracize them from society. That's what they did with David. That's how he's able to escape. This is the backdrop now to Psalm 34. Go back to Psalm 34 and appreciate now what is going on and what has happened actually in David's life before this very point when he pens these words of Psalm 34. And let's dig into it now. Let's see the circumstances now. We know them and see how he's now compelled to worship God as he ought to. Quick sketch, quick map of where we're going. The first half of Psalm 34, verses 1 through 10, are David's testimony. And the second half, 11 through 22, is David's teaching. David's testimony and David's teaching. David launches now into the psalm, into this praise to God. And first of all, he extols God. The first major point is extolling God. We're going to see how worship of God must include extolling God. In fact, let me give you the, the roadmap completely so you know how it's going to unfold. In verses 1 through 3, if you're taking notes, extolling God. Verses 4 through 7, experiencing deliverance. 8 through 14, exhorting godliness. And then in 15 through 22, encouraging the righteous. Extolling God, experiencing deliverance, exhorting godliness, and encouraging the righteous. Look at verse 1. When David says, I will bless the Lord, he's making a powerful statement of worship. That word bless is barak, okay? It's very similar in both Hebrew and Aramaic. In the Old Testament, it shows up 450 times. Now, I understand that the current president may not have been your first choice, but he's got a great first name. Because that name, barak, means blessed. It means to bend the knee. The idea is to worship. To worship God. So David is saying, I pour out my soul in worship. I prostrate myself before God because he is so much greater than I am. I bless God. He's making the statement of commitment from the very beginning. He's committed to praising God with his life. Now I want to show you what unfolds right from verse 1. Three aspects of worshiping God, of living a life of praise to God. The first one, this is a subpoint, is a frequency of praise, the frequency of praising God. He says, I will bless the Lord how often? He says, at all times, but it doesn't stop there. He declares then, his praise shall continually be in my mouth. At all times, and continually in my mouth. David is taking every opportunity at every waking moment to do what? To praise God. He says, this is my life purpose and calling. It will be continual. It will constantly be that in my waking hours I will praise God. Watch now. The ongoing life dominated by praise is, just not, is not just thought about. He doesn't just think about it. He doesn't just talk about it quietly to someone else. It is something that is declared. He declares that. He says, his praise shall, shall continually be where? In my mouth. Not my thoughts, in my mouth. His praise to God was something he's saying that is audible and that cannot be squelched. Later in Psalm 145, verses 1 through 2, David writes there and he says this, I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name, how often? Forever and ever. And then he says, every day I will bless you and I will praise your name. Once again, he says it, forever and ever. That's his heart commitment. God, I will praise you in a nonstop way. This is my calling. Christian, that is your calling, to praise God forever and ever. In Psalm 71, verse 14, we see this. The psalmist says, I will praise you more and more. 
Christian, are you satisfied at this point with how much you praise God? Biblically speaking, we ought not to be. Our aspiration ought to be, God, I long to be more faithful to praise you more and more as I see this, this reflected in Scripture. We see it in the New Testament also. Ephesians 5, verse 20, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Always in all things. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 18, you know the text, in everything give thanks. Why? For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Child of God, God calls you to praise him in every situation, no matter how difficult it might become, no matter what the trial is, no matter what you face. Yes, it's easy to say, praise God when it's going our way. But when everything is against you, when everything looks like it ain't going to work out well, that's the test when God says, will you praise me? Will you praise me? During the brutal reign of Diocletian, it was in the third century, Christians were marked as a target of persecution. One deacon in the church of Antioch, the same church that we see in the book of Acts, his name was Romanus. He begged fellow believers to stand true for the Lord, not to bow before the idols and the pagan false deities, but stand true and live for God and praise God alone. He was arrested, he was whipped, and he was condemned to be burned alive. And in spite of that, he says he continues to praise God. Executioners finally chose the day. They gathered the wood together. They tied him on top of that wood, and they tried to light the fire. But unexpectedly, a rainstorm extinguished the flames. Romanus continues to audibly praise God. It so happened that Diocletian, the emperor, was there, was aware of what was going on. He was unnerved by this man's unbroken praise to God. So he ordered that his tongue, that Romanus' tongue, be torn out. And it was. And even in that condition, Romanus still managed to somehow utter sounds of praise to God until his last breath was taken from him when he was strangled. Beloved, our call from God is to praise him always in whatever situation that might come our way. The frequency of extolling God must be continual. Secondly, the focus of praising God. The focus of praising God, look in verse 2, it's right there. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. What is it that fires up David to overflow in worship? What does he tell us there in verse 2? He says it's his boasting in the Lord. He's boasting in God. It is halal, from which we get the word hallelujah. It means praise the Lord. It denotes a radiant and splendid sense of the sun's shining power. That's what it depicts here. Job uses that same word halal in Job 31, verse 20, verse 26. It describes the sun's emitting, emitting the light's rays that flash across the horizon. So David says, my life is in awe of God and I boast of his greatness. I can't stop doing that. That's the focus of my praise. I boast in God. Now most of us here this evening, I venture to say that all of us at one point in our lives were taught, oh, don't boast. You know, you have not to boast, right? That was incomplete. Don't boast in the wrong thing. We're taught here we ought to boast. We ought to boast in God. He is the one that ought to be our constant boast. He says, my, my soul shall make its boast in the Lord. Isn't that good? Christian, do you boast in the Lord? Do you speak of him with boasting, with superlatives? In Psalm 44, verse 8, the sons of Korah did that. And they declare, in God we have boasted all day long and we will give thanks to your name forever. Selah. Selah means stop and think about it, process it, boast in God. In Jeremiah chapter 9, the prophet there says, and the Lord speaks through him, let not a wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this. That he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness in earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Isn't that good? God says, don't boast in anything, but boast in me and who I am. 
Christian, that is the call of God upon you. To worship God rightly means to boast of God mightily, boasting of him. That's what David does. And when we boast in God, what happens? It affects others. It becomes contagious. And David says that. When he boasts, he says, the humble shall hear it. And what happens? And they rejoice. They rejoice. You see, when we boast in God, we're not whispering his praises. We're speaking forth his praises as one would when they watch a game you're cheering on. We boast in our God. Notice in verse 3. Notice now how David turns to us. And notice what he says there. He calls us to praise. He says, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. In other words, let's belt out God's praise together as God's people. Here we see the third part of, of praise. It's the fellowship of praise. The frequency of praise is all times. The focus is boasting in the Lord and the fellowship of praise is what? With God's people, with the redeemed. Now, why does David bid us to join him in showing off God's greatness in praise? Why say, praise God with me? That's the idea here. Listen carefully. Because it's not enough just to praise God alone. Okay? Yes, on our own, when we're alone, it's enough. But when other people of God, the elect, the, the transformed, the redeemed are there, God wants us to praise him with them. You see, the magnitude of God's glory must be shared and shouted collectively by God's people. Matthew Henry, the commentator from the 18th century, still worth reading. He says this, God's praises sound best in concert. God's praises sound best in concert when the elect praise God in unison. And he was right. In Psalm 111, verse 1, the psalmist cries out, Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart in the company of the upright and in the assembly. He's doing what he said he would do. I will praise God together with his redeemed. We have to praise God in unison as his people. And this is wonderful. We sang wonderful songs of praise tonight. Thank you to those that led us. But remember, when we praise God, it's not me and God. When we sing God's praise, it's us and God. God has saved us, and therefore we praise God together and make much of him in those songs. Fellow worshipers of the Most High God, as you praise God throughout the day, let me urge you to invite others to join you in that praise. When you have opportunity, when there are other Christians around, say something to trigger their mind that we are here to be those that praise God and not just talk about whatever's going, around or going on around us. You can say something simple like, I'm so glad God has saved you and me, aren't you? Or you can just say, well, what are some of the things going on that you're praising God for that can join you in praising him? Parents, you spend a lot of time as taxi dads and moms. I'm sure the games and all the recitals and all that. Those are perfect hours to gather the kids and praising God with you, making much of God and praising him, extolling him. From extolling God, we go to experiencing deliverance in the psalm, experiencing deliverance, verses 4 through 7. David now gives personal testimony to the fact of how God had cared for him and come through for him. He says there in verse 4, I sought the Lord. I sought the Lord. And what happened? Verse 4. He answered me. He answered me. He prays. He seeks God. God answers him. It's the same confidence he exudes in Psalm 138, verse 3. There David says, On the day I called, you answered, and you made me strength. You made me bold with strength in my soul. Beloved, can you say that? Can you look back to times and say, God, I know you did that the very moment I prayed, you came through, you answered that prayer request. You are God who responds when we pray. It might be as you think about your prayer life, your prayers, that you're thinking, well, you know what? There's not a lot in the answered column. A lot of prayers going on, but not a lot in the answered column. Or maybe just, you know, maybe there's some dwindling. Maybe there's not a fire in your heart to communicate with God in prayer. Let me encourage you. Let me encourage you in the area of communicating with God in prayer. Three things. 
If there's not a sense of God working in your life in prayer, there are only three possible reasons why. Number one, it's because you're not asking. You're not asking of God. James 4, verse 2 tells us, you do not have because you do not ask. We don't have from God, James says, because we don't ask from him. The second possibility, you're asking, but not according to God's will. The verse continues in James, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. Not praying according to the will of God. There's a third possibility of not seeing God answer prayer. It's this. You're asking according to God's will, but not looking for and expecting the answer and seeing when God answers those prayers. So take to heart Colossians 4 and verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, but it doesn't stop there. Keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Be alert and watch and see God answer your prayer as he wants and as he will. 1 John 5, oh, what a glorious encouragement. Verses 14 to 15. I often read those two verses before we pray in our church in Michigan. Because it tells, it puts all those components I just mentioned to you about praying in a way that God answers and responds to. John there says in verse 14, this is the confidence which we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, we know that we have what we ask of him. Sorry. We know that we have what we ask of him. Excuse me, let me get that again right. If we, ask, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we ask of him. That's God's promise. God answers prayers, responds when we pray. David goes on and says, he delivered me from not some of my fears, but from what? From all my fears. Remember what happened in the situation before? He runs, he's afraid of what happened to him. Now he says God delivers him from all his fears. And mark it well, he says, all there, not some, but all those things that could cause fear in his life. Christian, are you, are you ever afraid? You ever anxious? You ever get, begin to become worried with what's coming down the line? We do. We've all lived that. We've all experienced that. We'll all be there again, be tempted to fear. God tells us here to learn from David. That he wants to be those that present to him those things that would cause us to fear and be delivered from all those fears. Now we get a snapshot of how the psalmist experienced God's deliverance. Look at verse 6. He's talking personally now. This is a snapshot testimony. He says, this poor man, he's talking about David himself. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Here is a perfect solution for an agitated soul. It's the physician's perfect prescription for stress, for panic, and for anxiety. The physician of heaven. What is it? Look to the Lord, trust in him to be the one who cares for you. Men and women, I don't know the struggles that you face, that you're facing, or that you will face. God does. He knows them. And he calls you, therefore, to place your confidence in him that he'll care for you that he'll meet all of your troubles and save you from them as he so desires. Notice in verse 5, David says they looked to him and were radiant. They were radiant. Nothing changes the countenance more than looking to the Lord. You look at your problems, you look at the concerns, you look at the things that are causing all kinds of worry that only cause greater stress and anxiety. David here says he looks to the Lord and therefore says that his face was radiant. Look, at, look on the rock-solid promise from looking to, to God. Their faces shall never be ashamed. Never be ashamed. Be encouraged, beloved, as you worship God, as you praise God, as you pour your heart before him, as you trust him, he will bring that calmness to your heart because he cares for you. 1 Peter 5, verse 7. We're promised we're to cast, we're told to cast all our cares upon him because what? He cares for us. He cares for us. How does God care for us specifically? How does God show that care for you when that unnerving struggle comes? 
when you face that trial? How does it work out? Look at verse 7 of our text, chapter 34. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Who is the angel of the Lord? You know who this is. This is the pre-incarnate Christ. This is the living Lord Jesus Christ. Christian, remember, Christ's job is to rescue you at your every point of need. Your job is to call upon him, to call upon him for help. And I love to picture this way. Christ is, as it were, the lifeguard of our souls. And he loves to dive into the deep end and rescue us when we simply cry out to him for help. He is the one who rescues us. He rescues those who fear him. David extols God. David experiences God's deliverance, and now we see him exhorting godliness. David is exhorting us to godliness. He's calling us to that. When you've tasted something so wonderful, what what do you want to do? You want to share that with others around you. You want to say, wow, you've got to taste this. It's fantastic. Try this. It's out of this world. Sometime back in the church, our ladies in the church had what they call a little recipe exchange. Of course, the men were invited. You know, it's just for the women. The guys would scarf it down and destroy it. But in the recipe exchange, they didn't just exchange written recipes. Every recipe had the special dish that was also prepared for the women to taste. You see, it's not enough just to read something and know something here. We're to taste it. We're to take it in. Verse 6 tells us there, Oh, taste and see that what? The Lord is good. The Lord is good. This isn't some quick 30-second you know, taste test between Coke and Pepsi. It's the long, ongoing, careful, taking in every morsel taste that comes from God. This is savoring the goodness of God. Now, what happens when you taste and see? What happens when you drink deeply of the goodness of God? Verse 8, it tells us, how blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. We understand we're blessed of God. We're blessed of God. And in verse 9, it goes on. Look at the second half, verse 9. For to those who fear him, there is no want. There's nothing else we want when we're blessed by God. We have it all. You see, when we're tasting of God, we're satiated with him, we're satisfied in him. Everything else the world can say you need is actually worthless. It's like cotton candy when you're really hungry. It doesn't last. It doesn't meet the need of the heart. It's just what Asaph says in Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but thee, and besides thee I desire nothing on earth. God, I desire nothing on earth. We know those words. We know that text. But we get tempted so easily, don't we? You know, the world throws all the stuff at us that's like, oh, you got to try this one out. You got to have a new this or that. God says, I'm enough. Taste and see that the Lord is good. I satisfy your soul. Come and drink of me. You know, I love illustrations. I love biblical illustrations because they're inspired. They're of God. And here in our text, we have a wonderful illustration in verse 10 that God wants us to understand what he does when he satisfies the soul. Notice with me, verse 10. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Now, of all the beasts of the field in Israel's day, there was only one, the most powerful and least likely to go hungry. Of all the animals, what was that? That was the lion that we see right here in the text. And the point is this, if somehow, some way, even a lion could become hungry, the child of God will never lack any good thing. The child of God will always be satisfied in God. God says you need to seek after what is your ultimate need, and that is Christian Christ alone. Remember in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not what? I shall not want a child learned the verse and misquoted it and said it like this, the Lord is my shepherd, that's all I want. The meaning was right. I have Christ as my shepherd who leads me, who fills me, who satisfies me, and I need nothing else. I want nothing more. How can we grow in being fully satisfied in God? How can we learn to grow in fearing God? Look in verse 11. Come, you children, listen to me, 
I will teach you what? The fear of the Lord. This is beautiful. David could have taught so many things to the one reading the text. He could have taught about how to be a warrior. He could have taught about how to be a great king. But he teaches here about the fear of the Lord. He says, come to me, children. This isn't just little children, though it includes that. It's all children of God to learn the fear of God, learning of him. There's so many things that compete for our attention that impede our worship. David here says, come to me. I will teach you the fear of God. I'll show you how to worship God rightly by fearing him properly. Look what David does. Look what he says. Come, listen to me. I'll teach you the fear of God. To learn the fear of God, you have to come as a student to learn from God. Psalm 25, 14 says this. The secret of the Lord is for those who fear him. God has secrets that he shares with those who fear him that grow in the fear of him. So let's walk down briefly the path of growing in our fear of God because you can't worship God rightly without fearing God properly. Very briefly, first of all, to fear God, you have to want to know that. You have to want to grow in that. You have to want to learn that. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. You have to be a learner to want to fear God properly. That's the heartbeat, learning to fear God. If you think you already fear God properly, you won't grow in that. Secondly, you have to want the best life possible if you're going to grow in fearing God. You have to want the best life possible for yourself to grow in fearing God. Look at verse 12. David asks, who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? What should the answer be? I want it. I want the best life. You have to want the best life to grow in fearing God. That's what he's saying there. We have to grow and want to have that. Thirdly, to grow in fearing God, you have to tame your tongue. Verse 13, he's talking about fearing God. He says, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Now here's a toughie. All of us struggle with our tongues. All of us sin with our tongues. James 3 tells us no one can tame the tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. We can't tame our tongues, but God can. So to fear God, we have to constantly say, God, help me with my tongue problem. As Isaiah needed that coal taken from the altar to touch his lips, we need God's touch to cure our sin problem with the tongue. Fourthly, to grow in fearing God means you must also run from sin. Verse 14, depart from evil and do good. Depart from evil and do good. Run from it. Be done with evil. But don't miss what's tandem with running from evil. They're doing good. I hope you see this. It's not enough just to stay away from evil to fear God. Negative goodness is not enough to get us to heaven or to please God. It's like this, just being a, not being a drunkard, not lying, not being immoral. Those will not make you acceptable to God. You have to have, you have to be doing good. That's what David just talked about. But we can't do good. We have to have God's imparted goodness in Christ that we sang about earlier. We have to have God give it to us through Christ. Fifthly, to grow and experience the fear of God, you must also pursue peace Pursue peace, seek peace, it says, and pursue it. Now, all these statements made about the fear of God, to grow in the fear of God. You may see that list and say, you know what, this sounds like a New Testament text. Where is that? The Apostle Peter, don't turn there, but the Apostle Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, he quotes this very statement, this very statement about fearing God. There are hints in the epistles that many of the new churches there had problems and struggles in the relationships. They didn't have peace together. They had disunity. In Romans 14, we're told, so then we must pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Why? Why pursue peace? Because the enemy often throws in discord. We experience that in the church as part of the battle we face that God calls it to wage. In Philippians 4, there are two ladies that were actually acting like rascals. Yudi and Syntyche couldn't get along. And their names are written in the New Testament text for all of church history to see these ladies had a problem not having peace together. 
Friends, this is relevant for us as a church. God calls us to pursue peace if we're going to be those that worship him rightly. I'm involved in this horrific counseling situation now. It's been going on six months. It's agonizing. It's the worst situation I've ever imagined with accusations that are off the chart in another church, and it's taken forever to work through. And I'm asked them just deal with, follow the text of Scripture, go humbly, speak to the elder, speak to the pastor, who are at fault, who are in sin, call them to peace, call them to be what God has called them to be. Beloved, be committed to God's plan for pursuing peace. Do what you see in Scripture. Approach Galatians 6.1 in humility. Assume you have the log in your own eye and ask the brother, sister, let's work this out, let's deal with this. Follow God's plan for pursuing peace. Well, the wonderful wrap-up in the psalm concludes with encouraging the righteous, encouraging the righteous, and this should be a great encouragement for us. The righteous are referred to in verse 16, 17, and 19. Who are these people? These are children of God. These are not the self-righteous. These are those that God has made righteous through Christ's work on the cross. Now let me highlight very briefly encouragements here for the righteous. And by the way, this gets to the heart of a life of worship. First of all, in verse 15, first we see intimacy with God. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. God here shows us that those that are close to him, those that are righteous, know his intimacy. God looks upon you and God listens to you with special favor when you have a life that is right before him. He's saying here he gives, shows special attention to the one that is righteous, that belongs to him, that is walking in righteousness. Now there's more intimate care that God shows. Look in verse 18. It says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. God is not only there to console, but also to carry you through, Christian, every crisis. He consoles, yes, but he also carries us through with his loving provision. It's the exact opposite of what God does to the wicked. Notice in verse 16. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. And we see similarly in verse 21. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. So tell me, what has happened to the unrighteous enemies of God? What has happened to those that have clenched their fists that have stood against God in history? What has happened to Pharaoh, to Herod, to Nero, to Hitler, to Mao Zedong, and all the rest that follow in their steps? They have ended in oblivion. Death caught them with its vicious sting, and the second death caught them forever. They're in its inescapable terror today. But the righteous, the believer, that's you, Christian, God says he will never abandon you. You have his personal, fatherly, loving care. Look at verse 17 of our text. Look at the all-encompassing care there for his own. It says he delivers them out of all their troubles. And verse 19, even more. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. All is not an exaggeration. When God uses the word all, he means all. He means everything you ever will possibly deal with, Christian, he will deliver you from that when you trust in him. Child of God, he calls you here to fix your focus on him, to cast anger of your soul upon him. But what are we to make of verse 20? Look there. We read there, he keeps all his bones of the righteous. Not one of them is broken. Does this mean that Christians don't break bones? Of course, the medical doctor is here tonight, and we ourselves, many of us who have had broken bones, know better. Christians, too, have bones that break. The point is this. The point is that God guards his children from evil. God protects the soul of his children from evil. This promise is fulfilled literally, I believe, on the cross. The fulfillment, John 19, verse 33, of Christ. We read there, but coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. And this is why, very interesting, the early church used this text of Psalm 34 
whenever they had communion together because it points to the fact that Christ's bones were never broken. They were never broken. This is a precious truth for us this evening. Brothers and sisters, God protects you as his son and his daughter in life and in death. He has you in his perfect, firm control. God controls and cares for your soul every day and forever. And that is how David concludes the psalm. Look at the wonderful conclusion of the chapter. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. What a reason to worship God. There is no fear of condemnation before God for the Christian. The guilt of our sin has been taken away. Our, our, our souls have been forgiven and redeemed forever. What we see in this final verse is an arrow that points to the cross a thousand years later. Because there Jesus died in our place, accomplished what had to be accomplished so our souls would be redeemed and our sin problem would be rectified. That's when he gave the greatest reason in the world to worship him at the cross. This is glorious and great news for us this evening. We have a reason to worship God, every reason, because we have a Savior who has brought us to God. Let me give you some brief, very quick follow-ups. What do we do with this? How do we walk in, in obedience to this text? How can we be obedient doers of the word? First of all, in the midst of your daily activities, Christian, praise God. Praise God in a punctuated way throughout the day. Maybe that some people think he says all the time, she says all the time, praise God, but let it, be, let it be when you say that, you mean that. Bring to your mind that God is worthy of your praise and praise him throughout all the tasks of your day. Number two, commit some passages that talk about praising God and worshiping God to memory. Start with Psalm 34 if you don't know it. Write down a card, put it in your wallet, put it in your pocket, put it in your purse, and bring it out the red lights wherever you are and review how God is worthy to be praised and worshiped. Let me give you encouragement. Isaiah 43, verse 21, a great verse to memorize. God says, the people I have formed for myself will declare my praise. Isaiah 43, verse 21. Thirdly, joyfully welcome trials of life as an, as an opportunity to affirm God's sovereignty and worship him. Our worship and praise of God shines all the brighter to all the invisible watching realms of angels when everything is against us, when we have to cling to God because he is in sovereign control. Praise God even in the most difficult situations of life. Once more, lastly, one more. Christian, be contagious in your praise to God. Be contagious in your praise to God. Every time you have opportunity with another believer, testify of what God has been doing in your life. It could be in a text message. It could be in a midweek Bible study. It could be on Sunday mornings. Tell of God's goodness to you. Overflow with praise to God and watch how it will be a catalyst to other Christians to praise him too. Would you praise God with me in prayer?